0: Before we begin this week's conversation, I want to let you know about a new podcast named Disorder. The Disorder podcast is hosted by NATO Foundation analyst Jason Pack and former British diplomat Alexandra Hall Hall. It examines the increasing chaos of our times, the rise of hybrid warfare, cyber misinformation, transnational crime, corruption, global warming, immigration flows, and anti immigrant sentiment, and how fed by these things, neopopulism has spread further fueling a backlash against free markets, international organizations, expertise, and globalization. The Disorder Podcast argues that we are living through a new historical era, one characterized by the inability to coordinate coherent responses to global challenges, and one in which major global players, previously regarded as upholders of international law, have sought to actively exacerbate this new global disorder. The Disorder Podcast focuses on our global system via engaging storytelling, discussions with experts and opinion formers, reporting, and solutions and suggestions for what can be done about it all. Find and follow Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter and consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, the plays of William Shakespeare contain within them a whole world of human action and purpose. They are, said Samuel Johnson, a faithful mirror of manners and of life. We seem to watch over Shakespeare's shoulder as he turns that mirror this way and that, from medieval England to the coast of Bohemia, to Republican Rome, to a desert island beset with spirits of the air. And from time to time, as the mirror turns, we see our faces there as well. In those moments, we sometimes come to realize, writes my guest, Elliot Cohen, that while we like to think that whatever we see in the mirror is beautiful, Shakespeare forces us to realize that there may be ugly or even hideous things there as well. Elliot Cohen has been a faithful viewer of William Shakespeare's mirror for many years, and his new book is a distillation of those lessons shaken together with his equally long study of statecraft and strategic thought. It is The Hollow Crown, Shakespeare on how leaders rise, rule, and fall. Elliot A. Cohen is the Arlie A. Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and the Robert E. Osgood Professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Among his many books are Supreme Command, Soldiers, Statesmen, and Leadership in Wartime. He has also served as an officer in the Army Reserve, a director in the Defense Department's Planning staff, from 2007 to 2009 as Counselor to the Secretary of State. This is his second appearance on Historically Thinking. Since he was on to talk about civic education, he's gotten into podcasting, co-presenting Shield of the Republic with partner in crime Eric Edelman. I highly recommend it. Elliot Cohen, welcome back to Historically Thinking.
1: It's great to be back with you.
0: So, how is Shakespeare a commentator on statecraft and power? You almost necessarily begin with the Baconians who insisted that someone from a grammar school in provincial nowhere couldn't possibly yeah. have known about this, that, and the other, couldn't possibly known have known about being a sh- soldier or about Italy. He must be someone interesting, like Francis yeah. Bacon. And likewise about statecraft, you know? I mean, how could how could Shakespeare know anything about statecraft?
1: That is one of the most peculiar things. Um, I, I would uh, commend to your listeners a wonderful book by James Shapiro, who's one of the great Shakespeare scholars who uh, <clears throat> read a book called Contested Will," which is about the history of the idea that Shakespeare couldn't have been Shakespeare. And he, I mean he thoroughly demolishes it. The, the sad thing actually, is that scholars had thoroughly demolished all the alternative explanations uh, of Shakespeare being somebody other than Shakespeare by the early 20th century. And one of the unfortunate things that the internet has done is it's allowed all the screwballs mm-hmm. to uh, get together and, you know. That's what it does best. And, mm-hmm. You know, and uh, convince each other that this couldn't be the case. There's also, I will confess, I mean, one of the things that's most odd is you get some actors, including very good ones like Mark Rylance and Derek Jacobi, who succumb to this stuff. Of course, one could ask, well, you know, you do a pretty good job of playing a king. And as far as I know, you've never been a king. <laughs> Um, so it's it, it it's very bizarre. I mean I'll just real quickly, the the uh, the fact is Shakespeare was was we know that Shakespeare existed. We have he did not leave letters or a diary, uh, or, well, or the letters he wrote were kind of purely of a business nature. Um that was very smart and a very fraught political age, but he was well known to his contemporaries, including people like Ben Jonson, Um and the You know, when you actually dig into what are the other possible alternatives, you'd have to have an incredibly vast, complicated, subtle conspiracy to explain all this. So it's it's nonsense. And at the end of the day, it's not very important because no. it's important to the plays yeah. That's really what, what matters. The, the um, one problem is
0: is that people just don't have any conception of how little evidence actually exists about them. You yeah, know, like, in, in, even in the 20th century, let alone how hard it is to know about... Uh, very important people in the 16th century. Right, uh, and exactly. also, they, you know, they imagine letters or everyone Everyone must have kept letters in journals and they tell everything about themselves and their deepest thoughts in them. And of course, they don't. And, that would have been a
1: very dangerous thing to do back and, then, or actually a, a uh, dangerous thing. You know, wh- one thing to remember, first, um, to Shakespeare's education, he went to, a, yes, a grammar school. You, you say that and, you know, you think it's sort of like an American elementary school. No, no, no. It's actually more like a an advanced collegiate um, education in Greek and Latin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was that. He, and he was clearly an omnivorous reader. You know, you can trace some of the things that he was reading. The, the other thing to remember is that he was quite close to the court. I mean, his um, he belonged to two different theater groups, which were sponsored first by the um, Uh, the Lord Chamberlain, but also eventually by the king, Mm -hmm. uh, King James I. He he wrote as much under James I as under Elizabeth. And he, you know, that actually put them in pretty close contact because part of what would happen, particularly during times of plague, they'd go out to the countryside and they would be playing in uh, fancy houses uh, or they would put on plays directly for the king. So they were actually interacting a lot with royalty. In fact, the costumes that they had were usually cast off, uh, aristocratic clothes that their sponsor would, would give to them. Uh, there's even, we, we know of at least one case where Shakespeare had a pretty close brush with, uh, authority during the uh, famous conspiracy of the Duke of Essex against, uh, Queen Elizabeth, where he, uh, Essex was basically trying to, try to launch a coup had shakespeare and his company perform richard ii which is about a, a kind of weak and incompetent king being deposed and um, you know was it what's interesting is we know that shakespeare and his uh the fell players were interrogated but nothing ever happened to them some people say well he may have also been a, a spy but in any case he, he was quite close to the court um, and observing it all the time but the other thing is he was a genius, you know. I, mean, I, I we, we have trouble wrapping our heads around geniuses. But, you know, by me, the definition of a genius is if somebody is still reading what you wrote half a millennium later, then you're some kind of genius. And there are others, you know, Aristotle, yeah. Plato. It,
0: true. He, oh. is a, we, he is a genius, but we don't even have to go that far. You've already said it. Um, Jared Jacobi can imagine himself to be king of Denmark. Right. We he has an imagination. You have imagined numerous scenarios in the past and wondered how they played out. We have imaginations, and so Shakespeare yeah. can imagine what would it be like, and take together that, and and then and then he elevates them into something beautiful that lasts. But he we has an imagination.
1: We all have I, it. I I, I, th- that's absolutely right. And I think, by the way, to be a good historian, as you are, uh, you have to have imagination because. Let's face it, you haven't lived in the 18th century, as far as I know. Um, and, you know, it. some people have, you know, tremendous resources of imagination. Uh, for Shakespeare on statecraft, I think that the key to it is that, you know, he, he doesn't deal with big social movements, he doesn't deal with structural kinds of issues, but he's fascinated by character. Mm-hmm. And down to the present day, it is character that counts, and he is an extraordinarily fine, subtle, uh, complex analyst of of character. And you know, we see this play out in our daily politics, whether it's Donald Trump or Vladimir Zelensky or Vladimir Putin or you know Xi Jinping, you name it. Uh, those particular individuals have tremendous impact. The other thing, as I point out in the book. Um, he it was, had seen in close hand the um, politics of courts in the sense of a royal court and if you think about it that is a dominant form of human organization the, the one relevant, most relevant piece of experience that I've had after that long and kind introduction of yours was being dean of my division of Johns Hopkins University <laughs> where I kind of ran a ducal court and there was a kind of imperial court back in uh, Baltimore run by the president. And you saw all of the typical things of court politics, you know, crown princes, As rivals. As a former serf
0: in that empire, I appreciate yes. the metaphor. <laughs> yeah,
1: and occasionally those people get, you know, kind of bullshit. Yeah,
0: uh, well, We had our reasons. But,
1: Workers but, of the but, world but, unite. But, but the truth is that um court politics is omnipresent. You know, I saw it in the State Department when I was counselor. You see it in the Defense Department. You do see it in the academic world. You see it in the corporate world. And that's what a lot of, it's not all of what Shakespeare is writing about, but it's a lot of what Shakespeare is writing about.
0: Yeah, I, I, I you know, I, I read this book, but uh, like first week of August, as I said to you, I've been watching a lot of Shakespeare and a lot of, uh, it's been very wonderful for my uh, cultural appreciation. We're going to talk about Henry the Fourth a lot because I had never, ever watched Henry the Fourth parts one and two on stage or in film before. And it's fantastic. Uh, and, but I can't help but see every story in the Wall Street Journal or the Post or, or the Times and put that into Shakespeare. So just like torn from today's headlines. Speaking of courts, we've got Xi Jinping dismissing the foreign minister because of a relationship and an illegitimate child. And I mean, it could be from the history plays. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. And the, well, you know, normal politics is filled with betrayals. Um, you know, people subverting their superiors and and uh, vice versa. Uh, the role played by extremely powerful spouses. I think mm-hmm. about Lady Beth. That's part of it, too. Yeah. Um, you know, you have the people who are one of the things that I, I talk about in the book is what happens when you inherit a throne. You might say, "Well, okay, that only applies to monarchies." No, it actually doesn't, because uh, any organization has a succession problem, and often the people who inherit the throne are either they may be overeager in terms of wanting to take it before the current incumbent is willing to um, leave, or they may be unfit for it. And they may be unfit even if they've gone through a a long period of preparation. This is, I talk a little, what I try to do in the book is take ideas from Shakespeare and then bounce them off some more contemporary things. So if you look at uh, what happened to GE, you know, you had Jack Welch, this supposed mastermind of developing talent and training talent. And after a long, exhaustive, he picks Jeffrey I- Imel to uh, succeed him as CEO and you know, within a few years GE has been blown up and uh, really doesn't exist anymore so you know that's that is that was a Shakespearean story and it's a Shakespearean story in part because it's a sort of a father figure being utterly shattered by you know the the son who isn't what he thought he was going to be. And you get that in reverse too, which is actually part of the Henry the Fourth, Henry the Fifth story. Where and then at Henry- the kernel of that, we we've got the deeper
0: self delusion that we always have. Yeah. Is that only if we could have seen things coming it would have been different. We could have planned differently. We, If we'd only closed out our stock options at that time, if we'd only sold, if we only bought, if we had gone to that school instead of this school, if, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we'd do it all the time. And what Shakespeare's kings do, we do about our castle, you know, our place, our time.
1: Absolutely. I, You know, I think he's a he's a masterful student of self-delusion and and at the extremes it gets worse and worse so you, look, you think about macbeth um, who kind of tries to convince himself that well first he convinces himself that, that this is a good idea even though the three witches or the three wor- weird sisters to be a little bit more accurate um, you know are very careful about what they tell him. they tell him things that are true but they're very partial truths he over interprets them to think that he's going to be invulnerable and that he can simply take um the throne and then he tries to convince himself even though he knows it's not really true that well if I just kill Macbeth if I just kill Duncan rather that'll be just one murder and I won't have to commit a whole bunch of murders but then of course he has to commit a whole bunch more murders but then he convinces himself that because they've uh, said well you're not going to be killed by any man of woman born that Nobody can touch him until it turns out, well, that doesn't apply to somebody born by cesarean section. Um, And, of course, he ends up uh, with his head cut off. And, you know, at each step of the way, he's, it's it's not just that he's fooling himself. He's letting other people fool him. Mm -hmm. He's willing to be fooled. I, I find so interesting is these characters who, sometimes against their better judgment, let the people around them fool them. And. Why does that happen in real-world politics, real-world universities, real-world corporations.
0: Well, you divide the book into three main sections, coming to power, exercising power, and and losing power. And I wanted to uh, just touch on a few of the points in each of those sections and uh, not exhaust all this, because I want people to, to buy the book, read the book, and then actually dive back into Shakespeare and then return to the book again, because I think that way, be the best way of of, of of the book being used, being read, studied, uh, is to make people study Shakespeare. Um, coming to power, you, you distinguish between acquiring power and seizing power. What's the difference?
1: Well, I think um, let me begin by saying I have a very dark view of why people try to get power and above all of what power does to them uh so it's this is not a uh how-to manual about getting power in fact it's it's largely about the darker side of power i think there is a difference between when you get power you know maybe through some underhanded means maybe through some dark manipulations here and there, but it's not done simply by crime. I mean, with Macbeth, it's simply crime. He just kills Duncan. In the case of Henry IV, or the man who becomes Henry IV, who is Henry Bolingbroke, who uh, we first encounter in Richard II, he deposes Richard II. It's under the veneer of legality and voluntary action although it's with a lot of arm twisting and implied threats um but, but it's different i think i mean i think there's a, a genuine difference in that i mean there is this air of illegitimacy that hangs over henry iv throughout his reign and that and, keeps on and, coming back to yep. haunt him but but it is not simply an outright murder um, it's you know, richard ii caves, and he gives his throne away. And, you know, Bolingbroke has been treated unjustly. And, you know, he, he, when he comes back from exile, he has a case, you know, his father's estate had been plundered. So is he pushing it? Yeah. But look, frankly, is he pushing, is he pushing it more than, you know, when George H.W. Bush, who was a very honorable man, his campaign was uh, uh, running the the attack ads on Michael Dukakis about letting loose. I think what was the guy's name? Willie Horton it was a murderer. who was pardoned. No, I mean that it was sort of underhanded. Uh, I think Lee Atwater, who was Bush's political guru, regretted it later on in his life. Uh, there's a lot of that kind of stuff that has always gone on in politics, and we have to. You know we have to, we have we have to face it. I think.
0: Yes, but I mean I do think it's interesting. I think you underrate the depth of Bolingbroke's crime, and I, I mean this is a book about statecraft. It's not a book about repentance. Um, and there's there's parts where you're like Henry V. I, I think it's it's clear to me, is obsessed with his father's murder. Of Richard II, George Herbert Walker Bush did not have Michael Dukakis shut up in prison and then starve to death. That's oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, no, yeah. I understand. Uh, you know, really, but I mean, so yeah. this is this is a. It, it, I think there are two different orders of things, and they're they're not apples and oranges because they're not even really fruits. Uh, there one's a vegetable and one's a I don't know porcupine. Uh, the, 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 rule, the rule,
1: of course. I mean, the rules of politics were a little bit rougher back then. <laughs> I find Henry V the more odious figure, by the way. I know you do. I, I get. I clearly get this. And and uh, it's very interesting. I've had all kinds of arguments with friends of mine who are literary scholars. They actually think I'm kind of hard on Bolingbroke. Uh, and this, by the way, what this shows you is the genius of Shakespeare. Uh-huh. That you and I, having read those plays carefully, can have an interesting discussion, which we disagree about the motivation of the characters. That tells you. That's one of the sure indications well, we deal with. Uh, I, I don't, with.
0: I mean, I don't, I don't disagree. I think, I think Henry IV is a better man than Richard II. I, but I do think that he, it, I think he did murder his way to the throne. I think he knows it. I think he likes to delude himself about it. But while in Shakespeare's geniuses, in the same wonderful monologue, he can both refer to it and lie about him to, and lie about it to him, well, to himself, m- most importantly of all. Well, you
1: know, welcome to politics. I mean, welcome I, I, to I, life. Mm-hmm. One of them alive i I've known people do that, but i, I do think Henry the Four he knows that there's that scene at the end of the play when the the guys who murder Richard the second come and they're basically coming for the reward, and he banishes them, and you know they're going hey, wait, what what you know and of course, Henry the Four hadn't explicitly told them to go kill him, but he had kind of dropped very large hints. Um, and he turns to me and says, "They do not love poison. Who do poison need?" <laughs> so, in other words, he knows that he administered poison, but he's not going to love poison. Very, very different, by the way, from Richard III, who he really likes the. I, I talk a little bit We'll get to that. He, really, he likes the murderers.
0: Oh yeah, that's what. That's what. Ultimately, that's what it's for. I think.
1: Yeah, because yeah. that's that, that's that's what he is. But I, I've had people argue with me that Henry the Fourth. Um, that Henry Bolingbroke, as he then was, when he comes back after he's been exiled, is not planning on taking the throne. And I, I, I don't agree with that. But I'm just telling you that you know people who I respect uh, take that view. I again, you know, when I, I mean, I've seen various institutions. I'm not talking about Hopkins right now. <laughs> but I've seen other institutions, I have one in particular in mind, but because of the libel laws, I'm not going to uh, say it publicly, where I know of a case where there was an ineffective leader, who was a Richard II type, who was removed, who was probably not good for the institution, was supplanted by a subordinate, who was plotting and scheming. And who then stayed in for quite a long time, and, in, and ran the organization—some strengths, some weaknesses—I don't think it's quite as good as Henry the Fourth was. Um, and you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty powerful parallel. And I don't—I view that episode as one of intrigue. Um, I'm not sure I view it simply as one of brute seizure. And I guess I, I do draw a distinction there, in part, just because I've seen, you know, I've seen so many times things that are kind of underhanded, uh, but I wouldn't. But I I do distinguish between them and things which are really, you know, just utterly. Wow, this this may just seem shades of gray to people. By the way, I should mention the opening line of the book, which is. It's that it's all very well to see Richard II and uh, Goneril and Iago on the stage. I've had to work with some of those people. Mm-hmm. And, and that's in some ways the theme, theme of the book, because yeah. it, it does reflect my own experience in politics, and uh, administrative positions, and simply being a Washington native for these several decades now. You make an um, interesting comparison
0: between Henry IV and Charles de Gaulle, who in many ways uh, thrust himself to power. Mm-hmm. Um, through force of will which yep. arguably Henry IV does as well could you expand on that briefly
1: well i mean de gaulle did that uh, as well i mean after leading the very leading the free french and uh, you know briefly really being the uh, effective ruler of france immediately after liberation he then kind of goes into a self-imposed exile and uh, as henry the Fourth later on tries to explain to his son in a way, keeping himself hidden at Colombier des Eglises, which was his um, his estate in Normandy, and then he suddenly appears on the stage. What what? One of the things that Henry the and De Gaulle have in common is that they're both pretty remote men. You know, they're they're not they can't be in touch with the common man really. They never were, and so. It, it doesn't really get to Henry IV at the end but it certainly got to de Gaulle that he didn't understand where his society had moved by the time you get to 1968 and so his fall is very rapid and very and very shocking and, and de Gaulle was a very a very much an aristocratic figure with aristocratic values um, now with Henry the fourth what he you know, what he, I think, uh, he, he doesn't experience anything like that. He experiences a, a bunch of nobles who he thinks he has helped along, and they think he owes them everything because without their support, he wouldn't have been king. I'm not sure he really understands their motivation at all, either. And these are both self-ruled men. Now, by, The contrast is really with Henry the IV's son who becomes Henry V, who is very good at figuring people out. And who has, uh, you know, he has had much, much wider experience of the steamy side of life and of the lower classes and uh, all that because he, you know, he's been spending time hanging around with Falstaff in the, uh, you know, taverns and brothels of uh, Eastcheap, and the result is that his his empathetic understanding of the people around him. Is I think unmatched in Shakespeare, and even then, there are, even then there are limits to it because he's because of his egotism. But but he he knows what's going to motivate them in a way that Henry the Fourth never does, and and therefore he's ultimately more successful.
0: Um, manipulation. Speaking of Henry V, uh, that whole that great monologue that he delivers to Prince Hal. When he's trying to convince uh, Hal to be as he was and not to waste himself on the commons and you know be like a a comet that suddenly yeah. appears, right? Um, that's a masterpiece of manipulation itself, uh, because yeah. he's manipulating Hal. He's comparing him to Hotspur, uh, to, yeah. to young Percy and saying, you know, well, you'll probably be you're my worst enemy. You'll probably a lie or so. He drives Hal to himself. Um, by that comparison, uh, but as you as say, um, Henry V, throughout the play that's named after him, is a masterpiece of manip- uh, masterpiece of manipulation,
1: all the way through from the very from the very beginning, where it's very clear that he's um, sort of playing with Falstaff and he's he's learning from Falstaff. There's, there's they go through this sort of um, mock play. Mm-hmm. Where uh, first Falstaff uh, plays the king, um, and then and uh, Hal uh, plays himself, and and then plays the king, and then plays the king. And at the end of it, uh, there's there's this wonderful passage where Falstaff says, "You know, the only good man around you is Falstaff," and uh, you know. Remember don't, me when thou art king. Yeah, right, and don't banish him, you know. Banish points, but, but dear Jack have good Jack for honest vow, va- Jack uh, Falstaff, banish him and banish all the world. Yeah, banish him, banish him. And then Henry replies, uh, I do, I shall. He, he says, I'm going to do that. And it's very short. And that's the moment, and there are a number of moments in that play where the, the mask falls and you see what Henry, what Hal's really think, which is, yeah, I'm going to have to get rid of this guy. Or another example of manipulation, he sets up this um, was actually at the very beginning where the uh, French ambassador comes and it basically sets the predicate for the war. And so you you come in and you you have these clerics who are uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, I think it is. Mm-hmm. They're, they're trying. They want to, They want Henry to go off to war because they're afraid that he's going to take more of the church's property. And so they're going to give him the excuse to go to war. But he so manipulates it that they accept all guilt for all of the suffering and loss that the war is going to cause. So he is completely innocent. And he keeps on setting up situations where he is the poor good guy Mm -hmm. and it's always somebody else's fault. Or, you know, he, he stages this, and I, I call it Stalin-esque, because it is, uh, you know, these three conspirators who he sort of lures into um, condemning a guy who had denounced the king when he was drunk. And then he confronts them with evidence that they'd been inspiring against them and says, okay, you're convicted out of your own mouths, and so now you're going to be executed, uh, because I'm just doing what you said I should do in this other case and and then he goes on this long thing about you know this isn't personal uh i mean it's it's real mafia stuff because it's not personal it's business but of course
0: it's always business it's, it's always, always personal. personal
1: yeah and it just goes it's on and on like that or even the famous saint Crispin's day speech which is a wonderful inspiring speech it is so manipulative because just a few minutes before he's been he's walked around the camp at night and he realizes you know, the soldiers. Don't think this is just war. They're really worried about what's going to happen to them. And, you know, he he refers to them in this monologue as, you know, fools and sort of dull peasants and stuff like that. Slaves. But then then when he gives the St. Christmas Day speech, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. You know, all of a sudden they're a band of brothers. Mm -hmm. He that sheds his uh, blood today with me shall be my brother. He ne'er so humble this day will judge his condition." condition. You know, and what what he's doing is he he is that is pure manipulation because the monologue tells you what they. It's one of Shakespeare's great inventions. The monologue tells you what they're really thinking. And what he's really thinking is these bunch of involves who don't really understand what I'm doing. But the speech is going to say, "Well, we're all brothers," mm-hmm. and you know what? It's not just that the character. I think is the key point about it, that play. It's not just the. um the the kind of other people in the play who fall for this, we fall for it. You know, we the spectators, we listen to the same Christmas Day speech, and we're ready to jump out of our seats and follow him. Mm-hmm. And I, I again, I just think this is Shakespeare's genius at work. You know, he's you know he's going to show you how good a manipulator Henry is, not just by showing him manipulating people on the stage, it's by showing Henry manipulating you. Mm-hmm
0: you compare Henry to LBJ. I've gotten as far as K. Rose, the second volume of K. Rose biography, which is of course e- e- everybody in DC has to have a copy right behind, right over their shoulder. I don't. Um, and I, cause it's on Kindle, which is designed to be read on Kindle. Um, and I can't stand being with LBJ for more than two of those volumes. I, I didn't, He's an unpleasant person to spend time with. He's a, I would say he's no more pleasant uh, running for Senate in Texas and ballot box was at 13 uh, than when he was running for government at San Marcos State Teachers College. Uh, it things yeah, he doesn't, I, I, Im- doesn't improve. But what my, but my point is, I think that uh, one of the things that I haven't gotten to that yet, and K.R.A.R. hasn't gotten to the point either, but a manipulation wears a person out. Um, it, it's tiring. It's a full-contact sport. And I think, you know, being as charitable as I can and, and saying that there are there are more things going on in Henry V than statecraft. There's, a, there's also a story of redemption and how to get right with God, which I think Shakespeare, if we don't take seriously, I mean, I would say someone with the last name of Cohen, your, your family used to be in the business of getting right with God. That's what, you know, sort of its job in the temple. Um, But the – that's a very serious part of it, but let's set that aside, okay? Just in the terms of statecraft, it's the night before a battle, his first – maybe his first big battle. Okay, let's leave Shrewsbury out of it. Uh, That's bad enough for any commander. Uh, He does wish he could sleep. He has his – he has the murder of Richard II. He has the way that his father came to the throne presses on his religious conscience, um, you know and manipulating people in the in the in the service of statecraft and the service of the throne however noble is tiring it's tiring yeah. you want to retire to texas and smoke a carton of you know paul malls and uh, drink a bottle of shivas every day
1: which is what lbj did so you yeah, know and that so he died he died yep. pretty pretty soon i of course i have a darker view of that I thought that was pretty dark <laughs> Uh no, no, enough. Dark enough. <laughs> I think what, Henry, what I think what Henry is doing in that scene is where he's saying, you know, I'll have you know, people singing psalms and you know give uh, charitable donations. I think you know he is he figures he can manipulate anybody, and I think he figures he can manipulate God too.
0: I, I think he, you're right, God, and in and in God, the background God. in the background of the Henry Reformation. Which is very much in Shakespeare's audience's mind. They see what's going on there, yeah. Too, you know, they understand this is the way medieval people behaved. You know, yeah. Is this how you get right with God? And the answer for many of them is, "We no, is not gonna really that's not going to really work." Yeah, that's not how you get right yeah.
1: with God. No, I, I like I said, I think I think he's he is manipulating all the way through to include the uh, the famous scene at the end with the. The french princess we
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's really sort dark. of I and mean, it's usually played for laughs sure and shakespeare sort of writes it for laughs because she's speaking this kind of broken english and he's putting on this you know bluff old soldier act which we know is an act i mean again that's the thing we fall for it too we think it's charming you know if you see the kenneth branagh version right well
0: version. and if you if you direct it with branagh and his then wife uh, yeah. And and they're young enough, and they're pretty, and it's all the wow. rest. That but when you it's read a, it,
1: it's different. It's a right, and then you know you're reading it, you think, well, hell, he, he just killed most of her brothers and cousins. Um, he is basically threatening a form of rape. Mm-hmm. He is insisting that he's going to take all of France. I mean, it's it's a um, pretty dark, coercive kind of thing not, not, no to, big,
0: not to get all gender historian here but she has become the objectification of France I mean she is France and he is going to seize her and he is going to rape her and he's going to yeah. get a child off of her which will neither be France nor England but both yeah
1: I mean that's and,
0: that's what that's I mean, what
1: the dialogue says and they, well exactly the dialogue the dialogue does say that and there's there, as always the case there's sexual innuendo as as there is in henry the sixth when you have john john Arc mm-hmm. there's another case of the female representing um, france re- representing france although i think there are different set of issues that emerge mm-hmm. there i think that, that you know the good thing is well, the good thing. at the end of the day henry gets his comeuppance which i think is uh it, it is so typically shakespearean that you know okay the play ends he won the big battle he's got the girl um He's got the kingdom and the chorus, which has been cheering him, cheering him on. And Shakespeare usually did. I don't know of another play where he uses a chorus um, is saying, oh, you know, just great. You know, we've tried to convey how great this is, but it's, of course, we're limited by the fact we're in a theater and all that. And, uh, oh, by the way, you know, he died uh, young and his son was an infant and he lost all that click. Mm-hmm. End of the play. <laughs> and so, you know, when Shakespeare does that kind of thing, as he does in a different way at the end of Julius Caesar, I think you have to ask yourself, what, what kind of message is he trying to convey? And I think the message he's trying to convey is, yeah, this guy couldn't manipulate everything. The only thing he couldn't manipulate was his own death. Mm-hmm. And that ended up being the most consequential thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, it is. You have to judge kings on the two things that they can't or three that they cannot control when they die whether they have a son or an yep. heir and how good their heir is Yep. Uh, and so Charles II is in many ways then a failure <laughs> but yep. it, to a certain extent it's not his fault but yep. he's a failure uh, Henry V is a failure he couldn't choose the moment of his death or the fact that his son should have been a college president instead of a king
1: um, you know but Sorry, uh, he yes. never survived as a college president today.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. he hey, founded Eton and King's College. I mean, he was a good college founder, King's College, Cambridge.
1: College college, yeah, yeah, good. philanthropist. You know politics are like today.
0: Yeah, it is true. Yeah, well, he's uh, he's a, he was a brilliant philanthropist. Then um, let's get uh, be, be, let's finish exercising power by talking about murder. Murder, you call it rule by killing. Um, we think here. I think here immediately of the the Richard the Third speech. I mean, Olivier includes it. I can add colors to the chameleon. Yeah. I think Olivier yeah. includes it in the opening monologue of his version, but it's actually
1: it's actually a lot of a lot of people do that. It's, it's from Henry VI though, part three, right? Yeah, yeah. It's from Henry VI, part three, act three. Um, I think that that soliloquy, by the way. Uh, is just brilliant. And it's it's the soliloquy, really, I, I meant to say earlier, that Shakespeare really, if he, even if he didn't invent it, he really perfects it. Mm-hmm. Because it's the speech where Richard, to be sure, reveals himself as a monster. But the great thing about it is he walked, as he kind of walks us through where his head is at. And where he starts is just sort of normal, thwarted ambition. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'd like to... I have high office, but it seems far away. Um, And there are all these things between me and the crown. Well, okay, maybe I should just try to please myself by, you know, being a ladies man. And then, you know, love forswore me in my mother's womb, you know, and he's, because he's deformed and, you know, it would just be a cruel joke. He said, "I'm that's, I'm unlovable. And, and you feel for him at actually a certain level.
0: And since I cannot prove to be a lover, therefore I am determined to be a villain and right. hate the idle pleasures of these days. But, of course, it's all a damn lie, since he's actually able to then woo and basically win the, the wife of the woman, the man he's just murdered at the end of
1: Henry VI. He can seduce, but he mm-hmm. can't love. That's right. And he can't love, and he can't really be loved. Because even if she goes along with it, she's not in love with him. Right. And I think the thing is that he's smart enough to know the difference. Just, I mean, he, he's, not taking a, he's not taking a vow to be celibate. He, he's recognizing that he is not a fundamentally an unlovable human being, which is a pretty dark thing. But then I mean, just to finish up on that soliloquy, he goes through, you know, He's describing himself as if he's kind of, uh, you know, trapped. He's lost in a thorny wood. Thorny wood, wood. yeah. Mm-hmm. He's you know, the, you know, he's tearing at the thorns, mm-hmm. and the thorns are tearing him. And you know, he'll, he'll have to hew his way out with a bloody axe. And then at the very end, after having first started by saying this is impossible and far off, he says, you know, I can uh, smile and murder while I smile and as you say, you know, be, be like a chameleon I'm smarter than Machiavelli you know, were it uh, uh, can I do this and not win the crown? Tut word further off, I'd pluck it down do. so he's now, I mean, it's, what's, what's fascinating to me about that is you're, you're taking somebody who goes you know, a, an ambitious type of a kind I know in Washington but he, as he kind of works his way through all this You end up with a really dangerous lunatic Mm -hmm. who's incredibly malevolent and narcissistic and sociopathic and very dangerous and crazy Mm -hmm. and i think there's a there's a real lesson to that i mean you know one of the points i try to make in the book is as i mentioned at the beginning i have a dark view of what power does to people is that it there's almost always a deterioration uh in character and i you know i think i've seen this in the political world in the academic world in the corporate world Uh, the longer you hold on to power it does things to you and i think it your sense of reality gets diminished in some subtle but important ways uh your impatience with any form of contradiction grows and it's why most dictators end pretty badly Mm -hmm. you know we're we're lucky and american politicians are lucky even if they don't know it that sooner or later they're gonna exit um and you know particularly talking about something like the presidency Mm -hmm. not fortunately, the the senate which i wish did compel people to exit
0: well, that's a complex. That's a, wait, we should talk about that some other time about the Senate and 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 what the Senate's
1: for. But uh, uh, by, by uh, the way, before you go any further, don't give up on the Caro biography because LBJ. I mean, the LBJ the volumes on the Senate and then as his vice president are. I think the one on the Senate, Master of the Senate, is it's magnificent. It begins with like a hundred page history of the Senate, but it. <laughs> Um, you really do see what his political gifts were. Yeah,
0: yeah. And to your, that's what, your everyone, point out, that's what everyone says,
1: but, you know. It, it. One of the things that's very clear about it is, for all that he was a bully and you know lots of horrible things, he, he was also a very gifted listener. Hmm. And he would really be trying to send, and he terrorized a magnificent description of what that meant, that he was able to kind of listen and figure out what is this guy really saying to
0: me. But back to murder. Yeah. <laughs> Cesare Borgia, as you point out, Machiavelli is holds up Cesare Borgia for like a killing or a couple of killings. Salutary yeah. lessons and examples. Richard yeah. III, that, that thorny wood, that being torn and tearing and te- being torn, I thought I wrote, I went in my, uh anthology as i was reading rereading that put i just put blood 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 the blood's yeah. the point um yeah. and there's this and then very quickly you watch any watch uh, olivier's version of richard third you watch uh, ian mckellen's sort of uh modern alternate fascist reality version of richard the third there's a certain point where he completely loses the point the killing is the point yeah.
1: yes that's 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 what there there, there are a couple of markers on that one is um that he really wants to talk with the killers and he likes the killers and you know if you look at Macbeth uh or at henry the fourth they really you know they'll deal with the killers but it's not like they they really like that line of work so much um i mean they're not squeamish but they're they distance themselves somewhat he does not he he really says, this you guys are great so that's that's one thing but the other thing that i i found really interesting and that i comment on in the book is the way in which after he um after he's been crowned and he orders the murder of his two nephews in the tower that he when his royal lieutenant buckingham expresses some reservations. He says, you know, I wish the bas- bastard's dead and want it done suddenly. I mean, he, he's, there no, and before that, you know, he had used all kinds of cutouts and subterfuges and stuff yeah. like that. And in this case, now he wants to actually have his hands on it. And he, there's even one point where he, he asks, he says, oh, I really want to know how they died. And it's, I think I compare it to Hitler Reported story. It's not entirely clear if it's true you know, that Hitler really wanted to see the uh, uh, pictures, uh, the films that they took of the uh, July plotters against him being executed.
0: Yeah, and and like Hitler, the murder with Hitler, neither long knives. Okay, that's um, sort of internal purge, cleaning up some you know loose ends, getting rid of the. The two socialist national socialists getting rid of the two conservative national, you know, the monarchists t- tidying up, making things neat. But, at, yeah, but even as late there. as didn't end there, even as late as at 42, where Himmler gives that hysterical speech, to the SS saying how, you know, you know, it's, this is a really traumatic, we're all suffering as we kill Jews. Well, actually he doesn't say that. But as, it, as we're solving this problem and we're gonna, it's going to be a great stain on us and it's a terrible burden, but we have to pay this price, you know, for the, the hygiene of the future or whatever he said. You know, that's essentially what he's saying. Yep. Um, but of course, by 44, it's an end to itself. And by forty-five, I, 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 they, they, I mean you know when you have people or like Canaris and Bonhoeffer and all those people being executed, like on around about Hitler's birthday in nineteen forty-five, yeah. this is machinery that will of death that goes on by itself. It is the point.
1: And and I think look, you, I think you're seeing that uh, beginning to happen now in Russia. Oh the, yes, yes, That's I, I was the, hoping the, you would the, say. Yeah. That they're committing in Ukraine or. Just staggering. But I also think that, you know, in Putin's inner circle, you're now gonna see more people have you know, airplane crashes, accidents in helicopters, falls out of windows. Yeah. Um and it's you know, that's again, I think this is something that um, it, it's inherent in the logic of, of these systems. That's why I mean I talk about Julius Caesar, uh, which Brutus is kind of a dope for not understanding that if you kill Julius Julius Caesar, you have to kill Mark Antony as well. Cassius, who's a much smarter guy, Mm -hmm. says, you you know, you can't leave Mark Antony live. And because Brutus doesn't really want to recognize that he's doing something really pretty ghastly, refuses to do it. And the result is both of them get killed Mm -hmm. and a lot of other people as well, including Cicero.
0: And Octavian, well, that Octa—that's because Octavian realizes, that unlike yeah. Brutus, that you're going to have to break a lot of eggs to make the omelet. Yeah. And your well, egg, my egg, dog your dog egg, dog. my egg. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, he, this is he's completely cold-blooded about it. Oh, yeah, I've always wanted to see a, um, a version of of Julius Caesar, and with when Caesar is Lenin, and the other three are. Trotsky and Kamenev and Stalin because that would work out really yeah. well. you know. Yeah.
1: Just It would well, express you know, a lot. I, I um, What's the movie? Last Days of Stalin or The Death yeah. of Stalin? Death of Stalin. Yeah. Yeah. I think it captures some of that. It captures
0: that, yeah, from a different angle. Um, but a no less Shakespearean one. Uh, let's, finally, let's uh, close off on losing power. Let's talk about magic. Um, you say in the introduction out Shakespeare, there's certain Venues in which Shakespeare considers statecraft: one is the 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 the, Henryad, the Hollow Crown cycle, as it were. Yep. Uh, one is late Republican Rome, the the fall of Republican Rome. Um, he, and then the other places are are places of magic, um, mm-hmm. or semi magical kingdoms. Lear is a semi magical, mystical, mythical place. Cymbeline, more obviously, and then also the Tempest. So, but you say power is inseparable from magic. Please explain.
1: Well, uh, you know, the the thought, I think, where that really hit me most was uh, when I was working as the uh, counselor of the Department of State, and I would have reason to go quite frequently to the White House, to the Situation Room. And, you know, I had friends working in the administration. And I, I've always liked and respected George W. Bush. But just the aura of power really got to me. You know, these wonderful pictures lining the wall of um you know the the president doing various heroic things the you know the sense of something special when the president walks into the room you know or certainly if you go into the oval office um it's the magic of power i mean really in some in some political campaigns you really see it you know i think barack obama really fell victim to his own sense of his own magic there's that New Yorker interview, I think he did during the campaign where he says, you know, I'm a better speechwriter than my speechwriters, better political analyst than my uh, uh, str- political strategist, I'm a better policy guy than my policy guys. Is that
0: the same interview he, in which you said, I believe my own BS? <laughs> yeah, well, he, he but,
1: was, he was. Um, and in fact, you know, he says, I think, to Harry Reid, I've got the gift. Uh-huh. You know, that's that's a belief in your own magic, and it, it, which means you think you can make problems Disappear or go away. You call that the,
0: Glenn, that the Glendower syndrome, which I like. I like well, very much. yeah,
1: right. And, uh, it's actually one of the best scenes in, in you know, in, in Henry the Fourth, where uh, Owen oh, Glendower, this Welsh magician, says, "I can uh, summon spirits from the vasty deep." And Hotspur says, "Yeah, but will they show up? I mean, are they? Will they come when you call?" Uh, but I, I think it's it is something that is pervasive in um, in situations of power that we ascribe uh, at least a kind of magical aura and sometimes genuinely magical powers to a leader who you you just begin to believe is all-knowing and foresightful and you forget forget that they're human. I think the greatest tell in Shakespeare is at the beginning of Tempest, where Prospero, the magician uh, ruler of the island, is finally gonna tell his daughter how they got there and why he's conjured up the storm and and all that and the wonderful moment is he he asks her to help him take off his magic robe Uh, because his power is exercised through magic and there's a lot of there have been wonderful productions of tempest which you know real-life stage magicians have helped create some wonderful illusions and he she helps him take off his robe and he says, "Lie there, my art.'" And then he begins talking to her as a father should talk to a daughter. And the point is he can't talk to her as a father should talk to a daughter when he's wearing his robes of power. And that's why at the very end of the Tempest, he, uh, he, you know, he's going back to be Duke of Milan. He had been kind of cheated out of the kingdom by his conniving younger brother He, um, after he's pulled off all these incredible magic tricks, essentially, um, and, you know, the right people are getting married, and, you know, some people have been punished, and, you know, everything has been reconciled. He says, um, um, I'll break my staff and bury it several fathoms deep, and uh, deeper than did plummet sound, I'll drown my book, his book of spells. So he's going to break his magic staff and you know, drop his book of spells somewhere deep in the ocean where no one will ever find it. And I've often, you know, I I wondered as I read it, why does he have to do that? I mean, why, if you have all those magic powers, wouldn't you want to go back to being Duke of Moan, you know, with the ability to summon up storms and all that stuff? And again, I think it's because he realizes what power has done to him. And he, it's not that he's happy to be freed of it. It's that he, he can be a more normal human being, and you see that in his, actually, in his relationship with Caliban, his kind of deformed, um, you know, half man, half beast servant, who at the beginning of the play he's just treating you, you know in a completely dictatorial, brutal, even way, and at the end he sort of says, "I acknowledge that creature to be my own." So he. He, he can even show some compassion to Caliban, who doesn't really...
0: But it requires uh, him that, to divest... He has to divest himself.
1: He has to divest uh, him. And I've seen different productions of it that I think have captured that that very well. There's just one angle, not not really about Prospero, but about Ariel, his spirit, who's flying around doing all kinds of things. And I remember one production in Washington where they Ariel... You know, usually Ariel flies around a modern stage with guy wires attached. Mm -hmm. So it really, the illusion is pretty good. In This one, um, Ariel flew around, but they had this like kind of a hawser, in a really thick rope attached to something on their backs. And they flew around on that. And I I didn't understand that. Well, throughout the play, Ariel is begging to be released from his Uh servitude. And so what happens is when, at the end of the play, Prospero sets him for her free, Ariel's sort of an androgynous figure, uh, finally gets his freedom and then, bump. The, the big rope you know, falls off Ariel and just falls onto the ground, and Ariel walks off stage. <laughs> and I thought, I, that was a brilliant piece of staging. It's a brilliant
0: thought, piece of business, yeah.
1: A brilliant piece of business, because what it's saying is, hey, Ariel, you've got your freedom, but that means you don't get the magical power to fly anymore. Yeah. And I think we, there's a less promise in that.
0: I think there that is. That's, 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 that's marvelous. But I want to ruin that um, by talking about technology um, and the Ukraine. Uh, you and Eric Edelman have been uh, on your excellent podcast shield of the Republic have been banging your spoons on your, your high chairs or your, your endowed high chairs, both of them, um, for, uh, and you know, I've been beating my cup in time at the failure to give Ukraine a lot of stuff early. Um, you know, I, I don't see my British friends that say, why don't we just give up them all of our, Challengers, what do we need them for? And I kind of we we have plenty of M1A1s sitting in the high desert of northern California. What the hell? I mean, can we we just if they if they want them if they want to run gas turbine engines, okay, God bless, take them all. Um, but and then ATACMS Advanced Tactical Missile System, I think, fine, shipped those yesterday. But I know, and I would go to my grave tomorrow believing this that for most people. An ATACMS, an F-16, an M-1 is akin to a magic wand. It's technology. And we just whoosh and problems are solved. And that has been a perennial American problem probably since the Erie Canal. Uh, Maybe before. I don't know. Uh, It's what we thought the Gatling gun would do and the Sharps carbine. And we can go on up through all the wars in American history. Um, and, of course, technology, like magic, is um, it can confuse the user as much as manipulate the object of the magic.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I'd say that's true. I, I guess I would also say, and yeah, at, at the end of the day, well, I would say in the case of Ukraine, the technology is not completely determinative, but it makes a hell of a difference, you know, when they got from people and no single piece of technology will, will have that magical effect, but maybe to bring it back to Shakespeare, what I would say is the Shakespearean thing in this is um, Zelensky. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you know one of the chapters in the book is about inspiration. And, and by the way, Henry V is an inspiring figure. When I talked about the stagecraft of uh, the way Zelensky has inspired his own people and in some measure the world so that he could get those weapon systems. And I think that's that's why it's absolutely still worth reading Shakespeare and he's still profoundly relevant to where we are today because w- without that sort of in- inspirational leadership by Zelensky, I, you know, the technology yeah. would be meaningless and wouldn't even be arriving there. So, you know, all roads lead back.
0: Yeah. Well, my guest today has been Elliot Cohen. He's the author most recently of The Hollow Crown, Shakespeare on how leaders rise, rule and fall. Elliot, thank you so much for being, once again, part of Historically Thinking.
1: Al, thanks for having me. It's uh, always a pleasure.
0: And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present.